Episode 4, The Gods of Egypt and the Law of Moses. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and try to see how those events in the past shaped our modern world. This is Episode 4, The Gods of Egypt and the Law of Moses. Today, we're going to look at one of the more important and durable civilizations of the ancient world, Egypt. While most of the world was living in tents and small towns scraping out a meager existence, Egypt started building huge cities of brick and stone with massive monuments and even pyramids. Did you know that the Great Pyramid at Giza was the tallest building in the world for over 3,800 years? It shows the Egyptians' abilities as builders. When the pyramids were being built, most of the rest of the world was living in small villages, and they were barely surviving on subsistence farming and livestock. Egypt developed into a civilization around 3000 BC along the banks of the Nile. The Nile is a remarkable river. It's one of the longest rivers in the world, and it flows from south to north, which is rare. In the south, heavy rains each year brought floods to the lands up north. In the places where the river flooded, very rich soil was deposited, which made the banks of the river very, very excellent for farming. Most of the Nile is, all, is easy to sail on, so boats could sail up and down the river, which makes it easy for trade and for travel. And beyond the fertile lands right on the banks of the Nile, there was desert in both directions, which made a natural defense for Egyptian civilization. In the ancient world, prosperity depended on water, farmland, resources, and protection from your, from your enemies. Egypt had all of that. So for most of its history, Egypt was one of the strongest, most stable civilizations in the ancient world. The Egyptians, because of that, developed a very sophisticated system of government. They built large cities and, of course, monuments like the pyramids and the temples and the tombs of the kings. They developed a written language. They had an advanced understanding of astronomy and mathematics and a very elaborate religious system. All those things take time, peace, and prosperity to develop. That's why you don't see all of these things in other ancient cultures as far as you see them in the Egyptian culture. Both the government and the religious systems were built around the worship of the pharaoh, who is considered to be both a king and a god. The religious system of Egypt included a hierarchy of gods, and different priesthoods served different gods. One of the chief gods was Ra, the sun god. They also worshipped Osiris, the god of the underworld and afterlife, Anubis, the god of the dead, Horus, the god of war and the sky, and Isis, the goddess of magic and marriage. The Egyptian religious system was well-developed with rituals, temples, priests and priestesses for all the different gods and goddesses, festivals and rich stories. The rituals included multi-day festivals. They included prescribed worship rituals for specific gods and elaborate burial rituals for those who could afford them. The Egyptian worldview included the idea of an afterlife. They believed a person's life force, or ba, would journey into the next world. The ba would journey to a place of judgment, and there the person's heart would be weighed on a scale. Opposite the heart on the scale was a bird's feather, 
the feather of truth. If the person had led a good life, their heart would be light as a feather, and they would pass on to meet Osiris and their ancestors. However, if their heart was weighed down by bad deeds and guilt, their heart would be eaten by a crocodile monster called Amut, and they would not pass on to the next world. This view of the afterlife shows up in their burial rituals. As I mentioned back in episode 2, the Egyptian Book of the Dead was part of their burial ritual. The Book of the Dead includes spells that were intended to help the dead find their way through the afterlife. Two of the spells that were frequently included in the book were spells that described that judgment of the dead where the heart was weighed against the feather. Many wealthy Egyptians were buried with copies of the Book of the Dead. In addition to these burial rituals, there are rituals for weddings, births, religious occasions, and special offerings to the gods for things like ensuring a good harvest. Compare this with the simple religious beliefs of the Israelites at the time. They knew the stories of the God of their fathers, that is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they had none of the elaborate trappings of the Egyptian religious system. It's no wonder that after 400 years in Egypt, many of them were confused about God, who he was, what he wanted from them, and how they were to go about this idea of worship and following a God. To the people of Israel, the Egyptian system of gods and worship must have looked much more well-developed. From the point of view of the entirety of the Old Testament, the nation of Egypt is one of the most powerful kingdoms in the world. So for the entire time that we are reading in the book of the books of the Old Testament, Egypt is a force to be reckoned with. Other kingdoms rise and fall throughout the Old Testament, but Egypt is always there, a great power alongside the Nile and not far away from the Promised Land. In fact, a lot of the trouble that befalls the tiny kingdom of Israel is a result of other great powers like Assyria and Babylon heading through Israel on their way to attack Egypt, or vice versa. It's not really until Egypt is conquered by the Roman Empire that Egypt ceases to be a great power in the ancient world. So, it's important from the point of view of the Hebrews in the Old Testament, it's important that God chose Egypt to be the nation that he called his people out of and over whom God himself showed his power and authority. From the point of view of the Hebrews in the Old Testament, Egypt is the power in these waters. The book of Exodus tells the story of God using Moses and Aaron to confront the Pharaoh, the God King, and for God himself to show his power over the God King and over the gods of Egypt. Some of the plagues that God sends to show his power seem to be directed specifically at one Egyptian god or another. For example, the first plague in which the waters of the Nile were turned to blood might have been directed at Hapi, the god of the Nile, or perhaps even Osiris. The Nile was considered to be Osiris' bloodstream. The plague of frogs might have been directed at Heket, a goddess often represented in pictographs as a frog. The pestilence against the cattle might have been directed at Hathor, the mother and sky goddess, who was often depicted as a cow. Sorry about that, Hathor. The hail and locusts might have been directed at Min, a god of harvest. And Exodus 9.1 seems to point to the hail coming right at the time of the harvest festival of men. And the plague of darkness, which lasted for three days, was perhaps directed at Ra, the sun god. Exodus 12.12 says, as God describes the Passover to Moses, 
he says, And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments, for I am the Lord. So the plagues come, God shows his power, and the Egyptians let the Israelites leave. The story shows both the beginning of Israel as a nation, but also the humbling of Egypt and the Egyptian gods. The Exodus is where Israel starts. There are many speculative dates for the exodus of Israel from Egypt, but it most likely happened around 1446 BC. As I write this, it's 2021 by the Gregorian calendar that we use in the West, but it's the year 5782 by the Hebrew calendar. By their calendar, the exodus happened around the year 2448. The exodus and the Passover celebration are really the most important events in the Jewish calendar, those in the Day of Atonement, that is, Yom Kippur. Once the exodus starts, the nation of Israel is called to leave behind their Egyptian heritage that they've picked up over their 400 years or so of living there. And they're called to worship only the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who hopefully they remember, but again, remember they are also struggling with the Egyptian worship and religious system that's been all around them. The God they're called to worship, his name in Hebrew is Yahweh, which means I am. And the Israelites are called to worship him alone. This is the consistent message of the first five books of the Bible. And of course, the Israelites struggle with this call. If you look at the five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible as a whole, that's really the point of them. It's the idea that the nation of Israel is this special nation that's been chosen by God and called out first by Abraham being called out of Ur and then by all of them being called out of Egypt to be God's chosen people. And they struggle with that call. Exodus describes Israel as journeying with the very presence of God in their midst, but they consistently grumble despite that and they fail to follow God's instruction. Over the course of the 40 years that they wander in the wilderness, though, the Israelites go from being a loose group of immigrants from Egypt to becoming a distinct people with their own laws, traditions, and history. It's from this 40-year period that they get the name Hebrews, which means wanderers. Another unique thing that happens to them out in the wilderness is that they are given laws. God appears several times to Moses, and he hands down a long set of laws, which are recorded in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These will become the laws of Israel. This is a kind of amazing and often overlooked event. The law of Israel is not the oldest set of laws that we have record of. That's the Code of Hammurabi, which dates to about 1750 B.C., The law of Moses in the first five books of the Bible dates to around 1500 BC or a bit after that. But what's amazing about the law of Moses or the laws of Israel is the content. The oldest laws we have, including Hammurabi's and the other ones that we find scattered throughout the ancient world, are usually about the rights and powers given to the king, the things that he requires and forbids his subjects to do. The law of Moses is very different. It's a set of laws that's built around the idea, again, that humans have turned away from God and need to turn back and acknowledge Him. The Ten Commandments starts with the law. I am the Lord your God. 
you shall have no other gods before me. Most of the rest of the Ten Commandments are laws designed to protect the poor, the elderly, and women. There's nothing like this in the ancient world, nothing. The rest of the law, besides the Ten Commandments, continues with these themes. It's a set of laws that tell the nation of Israel to take care of poor and widows and to take care of the priestly tribe of Levi who will own no land, to take care of foreigners and slaves, to observe festivals and to forgive debts. The law of Moses is suffused with the idea of equal justice for all the people and caring for the needs of all the people rather than being pointed at the rights of the rulers and the subjugation of the ruler's subjects. The law of Moses is unique in this. Nothing else, nothing else in the ancient world is like it. The next set of laws that protect the rights of people against the rulers comes from ancient Greece and then eventually ancient Rome. And even those were designed to protect the rights of the wealthy and the landowner citizens, not just the common people. The law of Moses is a weird and unique set of laws, very different from the laws of Egypt that they had just come out of, very different from the laws of the lands of the ancient world, and full of a sense of truth and justice. And that truth and justice, and not just the power of the king, is what is important. So Israel comes out of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness with this amazing set of laws about justice, the poor, worship at the temple, and the festivals they need to observe. They leave Egypt as a band of immigrants, kicked out of their recent homes, but they arrive in the promised land 40 years later, a nation, with laws, leaders, and a unique sense of identity. Despite their failings as they wander and their failings over the next generations, they never quite lose this identity, nor their sense of the importance and uniqueness of God's law. When people say today that our modern American legal system is a Judeo-Christian system, this is the idea they're referring to. Our political structure, you know, the government itself, is more modeled on the Roman Republic, but our laws, at least originally, have always been more focused on justice for all, protecting the rights of the poor and the disenfranchised. Our our laws are much more based on this Judeo-Christian idea and, and the laws of Moses. Now, we haven't, as a culture, always been perfect about enforcing those laws or ideals equally. Of course, even the Israelites weren't perfect about it. But our laws and their laws reflect these values. Now, though America does not follow the Jewish law, there are very overt overtones of the values that suffuse the Jewish law from the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are throughout much of the law of our land. So how does that apply to the world today? Again, part of the point of this podcast is to take a look at the events of the past and see how they affect our world today. I think it's becoming apparent that in today's America, the federal legal system is moving away from reflecting the values of the Old Testament law. It's more and more becoming a tool of the government to control the people. That was never the intent of the law of Moses, nor was that the intent of the founding fathers as they created the Constitution. Their intention was very much the opposite. It was to protect the people, even the poor people, the people at the bottom, protect them from the elite, from the government, from the powers. Neither the Old Testament law nor the early laws of the United States of America, especially the Constitution, were created to subjugate the people, but rather to protect them. Subjugating the people was a tendency of the other laws of all the other rulers of the ancient world. What do you think? Should law, 
uphold the rights of the people and protect them against the tyrants? Or should law enforce the rule of the rulers? This struggle between the rights of the masses and the control or tyranny of the rulers will be an ongoing issue throughout all of human history. Rights or tyranny? Read the Law of Moses and you will see a thorough protection of the rights of the poor and the people against the rulers and against oppression and against injustice. Read the most recent laws from our Congress and you will see the federal government trying to absorb more and more power for itself at the expense of most of the people. Next week, we will look at ancient Greece, the beginning of the Greek city-states, and then, going forward, the birth of democracy, which was itself an early attempt to protect people against tyranny. Music